Hello, and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Drake. Today, we're going to take a look at two of this week's biggest stories. First, the killing of Dante Wright in Minnesota, and then the U.S. Food and Drug Administration's decision to pause the use of the Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccine. On Sunday, a Brooklyn Center police officer shot and killed Wright, a 20-year-old Black man, after a traffic stop. His death happened just 10 miles away from the ongoing Derek Chauvin murder trial for the death of George Floyd last May. In the immediate aftermath of Floyd's death, support for the Black Lives Matter movement increased along with political interest in police reform. Today, we're going to talk about how that conversation has evolved over the past year and where it stands now. Later in the show, we're also going to play a conversation from my colleagues at Podcast 19, which is 538's coronavirus podcast, discussing the U.S. officials' decision to pause the use of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. But let's begin with where public opinion on police reform and Black Lives Matter stands almost a year after George Floyd's death. Here with me to do that is 538 politics reporter Alex Samuels. Hey, Alex. Hey, Galen. As I mentioned, last summer, after the killing of George Floyd, we saw a significant increase in support for the Black Lives Matter movement, and we talked about it on this podcast at the time. There was increase in support amongst Democrats, independents, and Republicans alike. According to a civics poll at the time, overall support for the movement moved from favoring BLM by a 17-point margin to a 28-point margin in just a matter of weeks. So how has public opinion on Black Lives Matter changed since last summer's highs? So I think the big takeaway is that support for the Black Lives Matter movement is decreasing. So USA Today, Ipsos surveyed Americans last June and saw support for the movement at 60% and then looked at where it was now and it was only at 50%. But it's hard to make a broad assessment of support or opposition because so much of this depends on who you ask and what groups you're looking at. So among Black Americans, support for the movement has been high and it's always been high. Another polling platform, Civics, as you mentioned, has been tracking support for BLM over the past four plus years or so and found that Black American support has been consistently in the 80th percentile. So I believe as of today, 85 percent of Black Americans say they support the Black Lives Matter movement, and that compares to 88 percent last June. So, you know, a 3 percent drop maybe not that much in the grand scheme of things. Where we see the biggest change from last summer, though, is among white Americans. So their support for Black Lives Matter peaked shortly after Floyd's death at 43%, and it's currently back down to the high 30s, which is where it was before Floyd died. And so do we have a sense of why we have seen more of a decrease in support for the Black Lives Matter movement amongst white Americans? So one thing I think it's important to note is that white Americans were never super gung-ho about Black Lives Matter to begin with, right? So it peaked at 43 a couple days after Floyd's death, but that was the highest it had ever been, according to civics data. Before that, it was only in the late 20s, early to mid 30s, just depending on the time of year. But the steep decline from summer of 2020 to now in 21, people can chalk that up to a number of reasons. Is it the decline in protests? Is it less media coverage on ongoing calls for police reform that make it easier for white people to tune out issues of race? I don't know. That seems to be a consensus among the experts I talk to, though, just because these issues of police reform have been less salient and not really in the media as much. So it's easier for people not to pay attention to them. And I want to ask a little bit about the partisanship factor here. Last summer, we saw that 
across Republicans, independents, Democrats, there was significant movement. And in fact, because Democratic support was already relatively high, some of the biggest movement we saw in favor of Black Lives Matter was amongst independents and Republicans. So how have things changed since last summer, according to partisanship? Yeah, so civics, again, tracks data based on age, race, state, everything like that. But one thing that we found was there was definitely a dip in support among white Republicans. It was a pretty big double-digit decline from opposition to Black Lives Matter in June of 2020 to where they are now. And we saw that in a couple of other different demographic groups, too. So the biggest dips in support for Black Lives Matter among white Americans were people who were older, so people between the ages of 50 and 64, Republicans and men. But Democrats have been a little bit more steady in their support for the Black Lives Matter movement. What has this all meant for support for police reform more broadly? The two are definitely connected. If public opinion is saying, hey, we support Black Lives Matter, we support police reform, it puts pressure on lawmakers to pass something and to do something quickly. But since public opinion tends to be so fleeting, it ebbs and flows with tragedy, there's less pressure on lawmakers now to act because not many people are constantly telling them that they have to do something about this. I don't know if that will change after the latest development in Minnesota with Dante Wright's death. But I do think it's important to note that just because public opinion is so fleeting, it makes it hard for lawmakers to constantly be thinking about this one issue. Yeah. I mean, how do Americans feel about the police as an institution today? So we don't have a ton of data on how people view police, but that USA Today Ipsos survey that I mentioned earlier showed that as support for Black Lives Matter declined trust in local police and law enforcement to promote justice and equal treatment increased. So it's at 69% today compared to just 56% from last June. But trust of the police to enforce laws equally and to treat people of color fairly, again, it's one of those things where it depends on who you ask, right? So an NPR, PBS, NewsHour, and Marist poll found last year that nearly half of Black Americans, 48%, have very little to no confidence at all that local police treat Black and white people the same. And only 12% of white Americans had that same view. And so it looks like this racial confidence gap in policing is only going to increase over time. Interesting. You were talking about some of the initiatives by lawmakers potentially to work on police reform. And I know that last summer there was bipartisan support for this. We saw bills from both Republicans and Democrats. A lot of times this ends up being a local issue, a municipal level issue. But where do things stand on the federal level today? There's this big George Floyd Act that has passed the U.S. House. It has the support of Biden, but it's less clear where that bill will fare in the Senate. You have some more moderate Democrats like Manchin, where it's not clear where he stands on the bill. You have some Republicans like Kevin McCarthy saying that the passage of this bill solidified Democrats as this party who supports, quote, defunding the police. So that being said, if you need 60 votes in the Senate to get the bill passed and it's not clear where all the Democrats stand, Republicans are completely opposed to it. I don't know if the bill will eventually make it into law. That said, Republicans are trying to pass their own version of some police reform. So Tim Scott, who is the last Black Republican senator, he's introduced a police reform bill, but Democrats have criticized his bill as not going far enough. 
So his bill might pass the Senate if he gets enough support from Republicans and moderate Democrats, then it's not clear how it will fare in the House. So, you know, with everything that's going on, there's definitely pressure on lawmakers from both parties to get something passed. I just think because Black Lives Matter has become so politicized in the last few years, it's going to be hard for lawmakers to reach some sort of consensus. So we're talking about higher level things that have taken on partisan meaning, symbolic meaning, et cetera. Somewhat similar to the conversation we had about gun reform on the podcast earlier this week, which is that when you talk about very specific issues, there may be broad support, but when you back away and you talk about guns more broadly, things become very partisan very quickly. When it comes to actual specific measures that lawmakers might be considering for police reform, what kinds of things are there broad support for? So a a poll released last week from Vox and Data for Progress found that nearly three-fourths of Americans, and this includes Republicans and Democrats, either support or strongly support a federal ban on police chokeholds. 71% of respondents said they want to end racial profiling, and 84% said they're in favor of mandating police body camera use. And in these three categories, you know, Republicans were less likely than Democrats to support their reforms, but Republicans did support mandating body cameras at nearly the same rate as Democratic respondents. And again, when it comes to that federal bill, the biggest hurdle has been the issue of qualified immunity or the protection that shields police and other public officials from lawsuits if accused of misconduct. So the issue has been one of the changes sought by Republicans and has been one of the few issues that Republicans have taken issue with and essentially called a non-starter. So that seems to be the biggest tension point between the parties. So it sounds like there's some friction on the national level, but a lot of the more significant potential police reforms would be made on the local level in municipalities that are largely run by Democrats. What kinds of changes to policing have cities around the country made or tried to make over the past year? So nationally, Black Lives Matter and the protests sparked after Floyd's death put new pressure on states and cities to scale back the force that officers can use on civilians. So a lot of the proposals that we saw post-Floyd and most of the ones that were successful dealt with the amount of force that officers are allowed to use. And there are a couple different cities that passed bills related to banning chokeholds, or I believe it was Houston, which is Floyd's hometown. The mayor signed an order uh, last June banning the police use of neck restraints and chokeholds. And the mayor also said that officers could kneel on a suspect's neck, which led to Floyd's death. And we've seen proposals in other cities, too, that primarily dealt with officer use of force. There have been some proposals to either defund or reallocate police funding, and there have been some success stories, but others have been a little bit less successful. Yeah. I mean, what has that conversation been like? What cities have actually decreased or moved funding away from the police? Los Angeles and Baltimore are the two that come to mind. They were both successful in reallocating money away from police departments. And in Austin, Texas, the city's council unanimously voted to limit police use of force and reduce the department's 2021 budget. But again, some of these defund proposals have fallen short in Minneapolis, which is the biggest example I can think of. The city where Floyd died, there were these promises to, quote, end policing as we know it. And those fell short because lawmakers, A, failed to compromise, and B, there was an uptick in violent crime in the city. Yeah, I mean, how have the calls by activists to defund the police 
shaped the conversation about police reform over the past year and public opinion? I wouldn't say it shaped it all that much. I think in at the federal level, too, there's really only a small faction of Democrats calling for defunding or even abolishing the police. And then you have Biden, the president, who has taken a way more moderate stance when it comes to police reform. But before he was elected, he said something to the effect of most cops are good. And he made a clear line in the sand that he wasn't in favor of defunding the police. And even though former President Trump tried to tie Biden to that movement, he ultimately wasn't successful because it was very clear that Biden was against that movement. So I don't think these defund proposals have derailed what's happening at the congressional or local level for the most part. Yeah, as we've also talked about on this podcast, there's a bunch of mayoral elections going on this year around the country, ranging from New York City to Seattle to Boston to St. Louis, recent mayoral election there. How is police reform being talked about in these elections? The main place I looked at was New York City. And so one thing that struck me is that some candidates, some more progressive candidates who had once advocated for defunding the NYPD have started to distance themselves from those proposals, especially in a very competitive mayoral race. For example, you have someone like Scott Stringer, city comptroller, who 10 to 11 months ago, said that it was time to defund the NYPD. But then earlier this year at a mayoral forum, he was asked if he would commit to slashing the police department's $6 billion budget in half. And he responded with this less drastic proposal to cut $1 billion over the span of four years. And of course, he got some flack from activists in the city. But I think that in some races, there's this fear that if you go too far left on defunding the police, that you're going to alienate more moderate voters who might be key to winning some of these races. What does public opinion look like when it comes to defunding the police? The public has never really been in favor of defunding the police, and that encapsulates Democrats and Black Americans, too. And even after Floyd's death at the height of the protests, there was never a consensus around defunding the police. I think what we found more support for was reallocating some police funding to other programs, and maybe that's cutting just 1% to 2% of the police budget and then giving it somewhere else. That's where we found more of the support. But when you say defund, I think sometimes that's conflated with abolish the police. And when people see it that way, they are way less likely to support it. So, you know, a year after these large protests, nationwide, to some extent, conversation about structural racism in policing and other aspects of life, does it seem like police reform is likelier or less likely? Because on one hand, awareness has increased significantly. On the other hand, we've seen something of a backlash and, you know, a partisan polarization on the issue of police reform. And we've also seen an uptick in violent crime in some cities. Where does that leave us almost a year after these large-scale protests, and also in the middle of the Derek Chauvin trial for the murder of George Floyd and the recent news of another police killing of a Black man in Minnesota. I would guess that public opinion on asking for police reform would increase just because, like you said, 
the right killing and then also the fact that we might get a verdict in the Chauvin case as soon as next week. That said, while I think there will be more protests and calls for change, I'm not sold on the fact that there's going to be this thorough look into how we can change policing at the federal level. And part of the reason I say that is because after Wright's death, President Biden's big message was to urge calm, tell people not to loot, but he didn't immediately comment on what this means for Congress. That said, I do think there's mounting pressure on Biden and congressional Democrats to pass something, considering they're in the majority. But what makes that even more complicated is that even among Democrats, there's not really a consensus around what should pass and what the best path forward is. I mentioned that we're awaiting the results of Derek Chauvin's murder trial and the death of George Floyd. Of course, that's going to be up to the jurors. But what do Americans think about that case and where accountability lies? The outcome in that case is, in my opinion, anything but certain. And we've written about this before, how it's uncommon for police officers to face legal consequences for excessive force. But one thing I found interesting is that a majority of Americans, so 57% of Americans, think Chauvin should be found guilty, according to a recent Economist YouGov poll. But on the flip side, 56% of registered voters told Morning Consult in a separate survey that they're not following the trial closely, and 21% said it was because they didn't think anything would change. Mm -hmm. So some sense amongst the American public that regardless of the awareness, that not much will change. Right. All right. Well, thank you so much for looking into this for us, Alex. I really appreciate it. Yes. Thank you for having me. Up next, we'll listen to a discussion from my colleagues over at Podcast 19 about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. But first... Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. On Tuesday, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration announced that it was recommending a pause in the administration of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine in order to study rare blood clots that had been reported in six people out of the nearly 7 million doses of the vaccine administered. This has stirred a debate about whether the FDA was taking the right course of action and how this could shape public opinion of COVID-19 vaccine safety. We're still waiting for more data on that. But my colleague, Anna Rothschild, who hosts 538's Podcast 19, sat down with 538 science writers Maggie Kurth and Kaylee Rogers on Tuesday to discuss the FDA's decision. Here's a clip of that conversation from Podcast 19. And for more, be sure to subscribe to their show wherever you get your podcasts. All right, guys. So we heard this news this morning. Why has the FDA recommended this pause? Well, so you probably remember that AstraZeneca has had some issues with a very rare 
and very specific clotting disorder that is not just like a normal blood clot, but involves kind of a combination of symptoms that should normally you would think be antithetical to one another. So having blood clots, but also having a really low platelet count. It's called thrombocytopenia with cerebral venous sinus thrombosis. And now it has turned out that this same combination of symptoms has shown up in six cases of people who have been vaccinated with Johnson & Johnson in the United States. Of those six cases, how many deaths have there been? So there's only been one death reported. There was also one other report of a a pretty severe case um, where they were in hospital. They might still be in hospital, from what I understand. I know six cases is a very small number of cases, but is there any sort of rhyme or reason to exactly who is getting um, these rare blood clots? Yeah. So, I mean, in these six cases that we have, they were all women and they were all between the ages of 18 and 48. So kind of skewing younger. So I think it's important, though, to point out that six cases out of something like almost 7 million doses administered is not really enough to say anything particularly definitive about who is experiencing this, what risk factors might make somebody more likely to experience this. It's it's such a small number that it doesn't necessarily tell us anything, and we could actually, actually end up spotting patterns where the patterns mean something else. So a good example of this is in Europe when they're having this side effect with AstraZeneca is that it was kind of looking from that data like, oh, this is something that is happening in people under 50 and in women. But then you kind of start looking a little bit closer at it. And well, they were also giving AstraZeneca primarily to people under 50 And it was also one of the first vaccines being given out to healthcare workers who are primarily women. So it could have been an effect of who was getting that vaccine more than who was likely to get clots. How does the background rate of this rare type of blood clotting compare to what we've seen with Johnson & Johnson and then also with AstraZeneca? Right. Well, I mean, as Maggie mentioned, you know, we've got so far six confirmed cases um, out of nearly 7 million doses. Again, we don't know for sure. There's not a causal link that's been established for sure. It's just this has been reported after they got the shot. So it could be unrelated, could be related. Um, but the thing that is important to note is, you know, a lot of people point out like, oh, the risk of blood clots is, you know, there with being on b- the birth control pill from smoking. Like th- the risk of blood clots is higher just in the general population than with these vaccines. Um, but people are kind of missing that this is more than just blood clots. It's this really rare sort of um, unusual disorder that can happen. And with this disorder, typically you see about five people who who get this condition out of a million people per year. So it it is quite rare. Um, And, you know, obviously we still have to do some work to tease apart (laughs) how those rates compare and if it's different by different populations or different people at different risk groups. um, We just don't know that yet. It is interesting, though, that this is the same syndrome, the same, you know, collection of symptoms that we've seen with the AstraZeneca vaccine in Europe, and that had led to pauses on using that there. And researchers now think that this is probably tied together around the form 
that both of those vaccines are made from, which is a adenovirus that's kind of used to carry information about the coronavirus into our cells and help our cells manufacture antibodies to protect against it. So something about that adenovirus vector is producing this extremely rare syndrome that's usually only seen in people who are taking a specific kind of blood thinner. I mean, and to be clear, I don't think the FDA has come out and said for certain that it is related to this sort of class of vaccines, these adenovirus vaccines. That being said, they also have not seen these types of clots with the Moderna or Pfizer vaccines, which use a different delivery system called um, mRNA. So they're, they're mRNA vaccines versus these adenovirus vaccines. Right. Yeah, they're really very careful sort of on how they frame this. Uh, we were listening to a press conference earlier today, and they kind of stopped short of saying that it was a, you know, vaccine class dependent syndrome. But they were saying that they think that it's not a coincidence that it's those two. Yeah, just the fact that this is such, if it was just regular blood clots, that would be one thing. But the fact that this is such a rare syndrome that typically we don't see that often just in a a normal population, and they both came up only with these two vaccines, but not with the other two, is a flag to pay attention to. And it's a good flag. It's a good thing that we are paying attention to it. You know, I've seen like some people sort of arguing that this shouldn't have been this pause shouldn't have happened, that, you know, it it just kind of gives the idea that it gives like some sort of, I don't know, credence to anti-vaccine fears, I think is really spurious because this is how the system is supposed to operate. We're supposed to pay attention to things that are dangerous and things that we can do something about like this. And we're supposed to do something about them. And that's what we see happening. Yeah, I mean, the fact that so so few cases of this have come up and the, the recommendation is still to pause, I think demonstrates how carefully they're considering the administration of these vaccines. They're not just throwing them out and being like, good luck, I hope it works, the way a lot of anti-vax people might feel this should give them more comfort knowing that when rare things pop up we're still paying very close attention to it and trying to react to it immediately um unfortunately a lot of anti-vax folks don't don't view it that way you know i was popping into some of my alt communities that i track um online and and they were more or less celebrating basically saying this is what we suspected these vaccines are dangerous here's proof of it and they're just like wait until you find out how bad the other ones are, which is absolutely not based on any kind of fact. It sort of exemplifies that, like, the people who are going around telling you, claiming to you that they have been doing all of this research and they have found these dangers, you know, they're not the ones who found this danger. The experts are out there actually looking for signs and red flags that represent real risks, and they're doing something about it. Right. This all this all got found because we have multiple, you know, checks and balances on vaccines after we do these large scale clinical trials that involve, say, 30,000 people to see what happens with the vaccine once it's in even more people, because you can't have a million people in a clinical trial. It would be impossible to do. So as we, you know, administer these approved vaccines to more and more people, 
the government keeps monitoring them to make sure that they can track any extremely rare side effects as they arise. Um, so it's really sort of the process working. It's it's like all of our checks and balances in action. Yeah, I think it should be comforting to people. I understand why maybe it's not if you're already anxious and feeling like unsure about how the vaccine rollout might be going. Right. So is there a treatment for this rare condition? There is. Um, I think that that's one of the reasons why they're actually putting this pause on this is that this is something that's treatable, but it's treatable in a way that is different from how you would normally treat a blood clot situation. So part of what this pause is doing is giving getting a chance for like this information to get disseminated among healthcare workers so that if you show up as someone who is having a blood clot problem and who has gotten vaccinated recently, they know to treat you in the correct way that will save your life. Well, let's talk about that. I know that there are a lot of people who just got the J&J vaccine who are going to be concerned that this is going to happen to them. So what are sort of the signs and symptoms to look out for? Well, I was talking to one of our readers actually DM'd me earlier today with this exact question because his wife had just gotten the J&J vaccine. Um, And I think that this is a really important point to make is that it seems like this is something that not only is it rare, but you will, it's not something you're going to miss. And it's something that um, is distinct from the very common side effects that go with all of these vaccines where you kind of just feel like you have the flu, you feel just sick and high fever and yucky. It doesn't look like that. So what we are talking about is something that happens a median of nine days after vaccination. So it's also not an immediate thing. And what it presents as is shortness of breath, pain in legs, pain in the abdomen, and a headache that is so severe that we're talking about like something that would make you want to go seek medical help. So that combination of things is very different from just feeling sick after getting a vaccine. It happens at a very different timing from when you would just feel sick from getting the vaccine. And there's a way to treat it. So I think that that's something that, I mean, to me at least, <laughs> to me at least, that would that like alleviates some level of anxiety because I know I'm not going to mix it up with something else or dismiss it in myself. Right. It's it's both comforting because you won't mix it up with anything else and because there is actually a way to treat this. And this pause is just giving the medical community the opportunity to sort of like get up to speed on, on how to deal with these cases should they arise in their hospitals. Yeah. And I mean, it could be the case that they, they come up with some new recommendations for perhaps a subgroup of people that might be better off choosing, um, you know, the Pfizer, the Moderna instead of the AstraZeneca or Johnson Johnson, there's going to be like a a cost-benefit analysis that they'll be able to put together based on that. So I know that in the UK right now, for example, they're recommending that um, younger patients um, try to get the mRNA vaccine just because their risk of severe disease is a little less so they can maybe spend a little more time waiting to get the that vaccine. Whereas if you're older, the risk of COVID is most likely going to outweigh any kind of risk of a very rare adverse side effect. And I think even now, right, the FDA has recommended this pause. But if you have, you know, a primary care doctor who is somehow able to give you a vaccine and you are at 
really elevated risk. Maybe you're older, maybe you have pre-existing conditions like diabetes. I think your medical provider is still in consultation with you allowed to recommend this if there's a, a really persuasive reason to, yeah. to administer it. I mean, there, I know that there were people that, there have been people that were like actively trying to get the J&J vaccine because it has a lower risk of, um, you know, some of these allergic reactions. And there are people with really high allergy risk for whom this is absolutely the best choice. Is there sort of like a cutoff date by which, you know, after I've gotten this shot, I'm in the clear? Do you know what I mean? According to the press conference that we were listening in on today, the latest that they saw this occur in the six cases that we have so far was three weeks after the vaccine. Um, again, we only have six cases, so it's kind of hard to, to draw any kind of conclusions from that. But if you got the vaccine six weeks ago and have, you know, you maybe had a couple of days of flu-like symptoms and you're feeling fine otherwise... I, I don't know that I would lose any sleep over this. Well, thank you guys for speaking with me today. I have to say I found this extremely encouraging um, and comforting. So um, I really appreciate your wisdom and knowledge. Uh, and please keep me posted on what else you discover as this story progresses. Yes, thanks for having us on. Thanks, Anna. Thanks, Maggie. Make sure to subscribe to Podcast 19 to get regular updates on the science surrounding the COVID-19 pandemic. That's it for today. My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bidigary-Curtis is on audio editing. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.